All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. What day is it? Where are we? What year is it? What is the truth? What isn't? What's happening? How are you doing? What's right in front of you? Is what is right in front of you okay? Is it okay right in front of you? I hope so. Because it's still pretty fucking gnarly in my head and down the road a piece. Down the road a piece seems pretty fucking gnarly to me. Hope you're voting. Vote early. Vote now. Let's take a walk and put that ballot in the fucking mail. Let's go. Fill it out. I'm going to stand here until you fill it out. Do it. So today, you're going to hear me talk to Wynton Marsalis. I wouldn't say I was nervous, but he's like he's like a, a music genius. And and also an encyclopedic music genius. So I was wasn't that I was nervous, just like there are things I need to know about jazz and I don't know about jazz. I know about three things about jazz. He knows everything about jazz. And uh it was a little intimidating. He's also, you know, he's the director of jazz at Lincoln Center, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's won a million Grammys. He got the National Medal of the Arts. Comes from a family full of renowned jazz musicians. And I'm like, that, uh, yeah, Thelonious Monk's pretty good, right? That Thelonious Monk. <laughs> but uh, it was an honor to talk to the guy. And I listened to the hell out of his new record, man. This, uh, the ever funky, the ever funky lowdown. It's just one of these records. It's like a masterpiece. Like, there's like three or four albums to it. There's, there's like 50 fucking riffs and songs and there's a narrative and there's poetry. And it's like, holy shit. And I would never have seen it hadn't, you know, hadn't I been following him and been you know, friendly with the, uh, with the uh, Jazz at Lincoln Centered people. You look at his discography, he's done a rec- like 10 records a year for fuck's sake. The guy does all these records. I'm like, where have I been? I've been collecting old records. And having certain opinions about jazz based on, I don't know what. Winton is one of those guys, he's like too good. He's, <laughs> he's, like, he's like good at his own trip. He's good at classical. He can mimic people perfectly. Just complete control of the instrument and his mind. And I'm listening to this new record and it's like a fucking masterpiece. And I'm like, is there's, are people going to know about the ever funky low down? The ever funky funky it's how it's spelled f-o-n but funky i just was in the and the subjects he discusses are all relevant and he and his sources are are great sort of like the old time snake oil salesman and just you know folk stories and like fucking I, it's just I, it was one of those things where it's like wait why didn't i know about this well now i know i was happy i immersed myself in it and that i was able to uh to, to you know to talk about it and learn some things i i look to winton as a teacher but he's a good guy too he's a good guy and you're gonna hear me talk to him soon so if you haven't heard glow the show glow is over they've stopped it you know we were two and a half episodes into shooting when the lockdown started and they kept pushing it down the road a piece and the, and we were told that it's going to go, we're going to do it. Production's going to start in like March. We'll probably be shooting in May and then uh, 
A couple of days ago, they said, nope, it's done. We're not doing it. And yeah, yeah, I'm upset, but it's like we live in this fucking world. There's like, you know, 15 people on that set and a lot of them are engaging all at once. And, you know, they don't even quite understand this disease fully, let alone, you know, how to protect people from it on, on in the way necessary to guarantee that we would even be able to do it in May. I understand Netflix, Netflix's argument uh, as to why they canceled it. There was a lot of people that love the show over there and there's a lot of you that love the show. I get it. But it's still, you know, it hurts because we had the writers, Carly and Liz, had the, the final seasons laid out. You know, they know the story. So, you know, part of me is like, well, why don't we make a movie down the line? You know, why don't we just, you know, wrap it up with a two-hour Netflix movie? I suggested that. And people started tweeting about it and talking about it. And then the head of Netflix, he emailed me, explained what was up. He just basically said, we can't. You don't know when we can do it safely. Yeah, I get it. I get the business side of it. I get the safety side of it. I mean, this year's just been fucked up. You know, I lost two cats. I lost a girlfriend. I lost my stand-up job. I lost a glow job. I'm okay, but it's a bit much. We might lose the country. It's fucking a lot. It's a lot. And it was weird, you know, when I talked about that the other day, about when uh, the monster was in the hospital, and I had, I personally had a certain sense of relief because I wasn't being assaulted and didn't feel like there was, you know, uh, stepdaddy chaos everywhere. And uh, and then he's back. I just, like, he is instinctually authoritarian. And so, and the chaos he creates is intentional. And the way it trickles down is intentional. And, you know, the supplicants, enablers, grifters, small timers, short money people, conspiracy theorists, angry fascist freaks, you know, all of them just, you know, follow in line and do their part to sort of disassemble, aggressively disassemble any sense of reality or truth to the point where, look, you know, lefties were no stranger to the conspiracy. I mean, fuck, we invented deep state. The lefties invented deep state and we had, you know, we were all disappointed that it turns out it doesn't exist because they didn't show up to <laughs> to take care of this. All the, the, the more modern conspiracies from the 60s, a lot of them were kind of left-leaning. The old-timey ones like uh, Zog and, you know, Illuminati stuff, that's been around a long time and that was mostly um, Christian demonization of the Jews, but... Point being, as these elaborate mythologies kind of uh, mutate and grow malignantly as they are added onto by dumb people who like to connect dots and sort of make equations out of uh, random facts, tie them together and call it truth, and then throw in some mystical hokum and some uh, religiosity, and then you know they just sort of let that cradle in their dumb noggins and they're like, I got it. I got the whole package. I got the truth. I know what's going on. I know where it's heading. You don't. But the problem is, is that once it becomes a slippery slope or kind of a mushy middle zone of what is real and what isn't and who you can trust with the truth and who you can't, then all of a sudden everybody just is sort of like, who knows? Who knows? So you have no, you're not tethered to a um, grounded reality anymore or a sense of order or truth or process, context. And you just kind of go through your life not believing any of that matters and you focus on your task at hand and you kind of like uh, your brain goes a little dead in that area and you just take what they give you 
That's the plan. That's the way authoritarianism works. It's too much out there. I just, you know, I, I, I don't know how everybody partakes in it so aggressively. I, I can't take it. So I'm sorry about Glow. I do have a couple of other things happening, the last few projects that uh, are going to be available of me are these movies I did, Respect, the Aretha Franklin flick with uh, Jennifer Hudson, and Stardust, the David Bowie flick with Johnny Flynn. I mean, there. I will bring. I will give you more information on that stuff uh, as I get it. I'm trying to keep you in the loop. I really am. I really am. My hand is okay. I was a little paranoid. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get the chronic uh, diarrhea disease from the. Uh, from the antibiotics, there's still a little tenderness deep in the tendon, which I hope doesn't flare up in some way, and I, you know, I lose my thumb. But the but the bite is okay. But it was pretty fucking overwhelming, man. And it took me a while to accept Buster again as a as a as a friend. It's hard to accept your friend when they bite your hand and cause an infection that makes you sick. Like if your friend did that to you, would you would you right away be like, hey pal, what's up? I can only pet you with this one hand. But I guess that's what you get when you own animals. Okay, so listen. I listened to a lot of Winton before I did this, and there is a lot of Winton to listen to, and I read some stuff. Um, but he's a, you know, he is a, a giant in the world of jazz. He's a giant in the world of making sure that jazz survives and is understood and is taught and is appreciated and enjoyed. Almost all kinds of jazz. Let's say all, but I do believe there are some he likes better than others. Uh, really, it was uh, it was an honor to talk to this guy. As I mentioned earlier, his latest composition is called "The Ever Funky Lowdown." You can call it an opera or a polemic or a performance art, whatever you call it. You can get it at store.jazz.org. And this is me talking to the amazing. Winton Marsalis. You look good, man. How, how you feeling, Winton? Good, man. How you been? I'm hanging in. <laughs> <laughs> interesting time i gotta tell you something man you, you know i've been wanting to talk to you for a while and i i'm not a, a music journalist or anything but i'm a music lover and i've spent some time in the last few years trying to understand and uh, get in, engaged with jazz music uh but when they sent me this thing the ever funky lowdown and i was like why <laughs> what is this thing and <laughs> And when I listened to it, and I was like, "Holy shit! What the fuck is happening? Is he's 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 getting it all in? It's all in one dark piece." I mean, well, you just what what possessed? I don't even know how to describe it. Is it an opera? What is it? No, it's just it's just a a story. It's a game, you know. It's a story. It's a game with a satirical character, and and the music is just all kind of stuff that I grew up playing, 
And, um, but I mean, but it's deep, man. I mean, I, I get it. I get that the pitch is it's a game and you've got Mr. Game and you've got this satire. But I mean, you're you're selling it a little short by just saying, yeah, it's a fun. It's not like a fun record, well, I mean, right? No, it's stuff that I, I learned across all these years just about people, about human beings, um, because I, I, I've toured for 40 years now. And because I taught in so many schools all over the United States I, and uh I stay after every gig. So I meet parents and kids starting in 1980. So you figure it's 2020 now. Yeah. And I'm afraid to fly. So I also drive everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I've met so many people and their kids in so many states and places, really all over the world. But let's, let's just say, especially in the United States, a lot of stuff becomes clear to me when I hear people talk to each other. Uh, and when people talk about other people, my father used to always have a thing. He hated for you to call a group of people they. Mm. So that's why the second movement of this is called they. He would say, hey, man, who is they? Do you know them? Have you met them? Have you sat down with them? Did you talk with them? Because he grew up in very strict segregation. And um, so it's really uh, the things in the Ever Funky Lowdown are just things that I have observed and know about our country. And of all the long pieces I've written, this is the one that I did the least amount of musical research for. Because a lot of the styles are styles that I grew up playing. And so far as the story goes, it's just what's apparent about about, about what goes on out here. Well, yeah, well, it's, it, right. It, it's about America, but it's also about power. It's about money. Right. It's about uh, the black experience. Right. Uh, but but then you sort of build from that and you talk about freedom in a general sense, how it relates right. to technology and what that means, what is freedom. Right. So, I mean, you know, these are and, and this character is this sort of snake oil salesman, huckster, con man, president, right. Right. you know, what, whatever, you know, you're going to call this guy. It's sort of a, the dark trickster that runs through history right. and, 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 and however you want to look at it, steals people's souls and sells them back to them. I mean, right. you captured it. That's, that's what he does. And, you know, he comes in many forms like you and I. Uh, we're, we're the age where we you remember Oral Roberts, Reverend Ike. Yeah. In the 1970s. Uh, um, and, and it's a combination of many people, different rhetoric we've heard from different United States presidents, stuff, a game that Julius Caesar ran, stuff that um, that Hitler used. It's yeah. all the kind, of, uh, the kind of differentiation between people. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, Cain noticed Abel was different from him. Right. You can go in any any tradition you want to go in. Right. And then the question becomes, well, what's wrong with me? There was something that's wrong with these people. Or it's especially you notice in the schoolyard, the bullies or the cool people or the this or the that. Yeah. You know, if I was I was lucky growing up because I'd never really dealt with anything being messed with. Or, I mean, I grew up. There was a lot of a lot of a lot of fighting and, and ignorance. But um, I was always able to, to handle business enough to not to not be in the group uh, that was messed with. But. When we became integrated after Martin Luther King was killed, you had to deal with stuff, you know. And um, it was always interesting to me who the kids would pick to be an outsider if they weren't black. Yeah. And uh, it, it was always some strange kind of thing. They would they would figure out who it was. <laughs> and, and, and it was always a, a kid that, that was just uh, different and probably couldn't protect right. himself. Right, right. God helped him. Yeah. And, you know, if they couldn't protect themselves, God helped them. Yeah, and they and they just were relentlessly bullied for no reason, just because you know, they like, were well, weird. Right, right. So you know, yeah, it was interesting. 
Because if you were black, if you were at that time where where I was from, if you were black, you were such an outsider. You didn't you didn't even qualify for that. It was just like you had to deal with another equation. Right, but, but, um, but at least in that equation, you, you had peers, you had other black people, you had friends. <laughs> Usually, they picked the one guy that was just too odd and didn't fit in, and he had nowhere to go. Man, in, in this case of this school, it was a girl. Oh, and man, they picked on this girl. It was just relentless, and uh, it, I just remember thinking, man, you know, why? And then it go, it extends to groups of people and it extends. Then as you as you grow older, you start to notice as the stakes get higher and higher. But with Mr. Game, he's pulling the double switcheroo. So it's like what you said. He he brings you in close to him so he can stab you while while he has you looking at somebody else, then he sends you out with that wound. And you right, still feel connected to him. That's right. And, it, and he also switches your brain to believe that he's helping or he's doing something good. That's, I like the right. focus. I mean, you really it's it's so it's so ambitious. The the libretto, the libretto, you know, which I had to read a couple of times because I listened to the album a couple of times. It must be I mean, is it going to be released on on CD or vinyl? Because it must mm. be nine records. I mean, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and that's that's the curse that was put on me. I'm always writing long pieces. And, uh, <laughs> always, I don't know why they're that long, man. I just, that's just there's a, always a lot. Come on, Winton, there's, there's, there's like 55 tracks on yeah. this thing. They're always, they're always like that. I don't set out to make them like that. Blood on the Fields was three CDs. You know, All Right yeah. was an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, Congo Square was two hours. I don't even know how long this was, but but the thing is, there's a narrative, there's an arc, there are these uh, you know these setups of these, uh, you know the the it's broken into what four, um, what is it four game uh, not four games or how it's, it's four, like four seven, prizes four yeah, prizes it's, it's seven, seven objectives and yeah. five prizes five prizes so, yeah the seven objectives are what I have what you have to believe in order for you to qualify for the prizes. So and and those seven objectives, yeah, it's it's a way that the seven objectives, if you work through them, are just you annihilating your sense of self and ego in order right. to play along with the game. That's right. It's like it's like being a part of a game. But really, is about you know sort of exploring the idea uh, of power and and the idea of freedom in relation to you know I, I think the core of it it seems to be the the black experience, but then you know the overarching of it is. You know, all of our experience. It's about commodification. Yeah, you know, the truth is it's the white experience. Yeah. Like if you really check up, Mr. Game is not talking to black people. No, He's I know. He's talking to white people. He's talking right. to the white American. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, I was I was in that first generation. It was really integrated, more or less. We weren't really integrated, but, you know, I was in that kind of throw period. It was really tough. My parents were completely segregated. Where, where, now, and, this was, you grew up in New Orleans, right? I grew up outside of New Orleans. It's Kenner, Lil Farms, Brobridge, Towns. We moved to New Orleans when I was 12. How many kids were there? Six kids. And your parents. And your dad yeah, was a, a, a musician. My dad a and my mom. You know, jazz musician, jazz musician. And you remember, you have uh, uh, real memories of when it was integrated. Man, I remember every, uh, yeah, I remember all about it. I remember when King was killed. Um, I remember a lot of late after 1966, I can remember. First concert I went to was James Brown at the Municipal Auditorium, 1967. I can remember that concert. That was a good, right? I remember right? Uh, going to all black school, then go to all white school. Oh, yeah. JB at that time? Yeah. Man. Was, <laughs> you can't even, <laughs> you can't describe what it was like to be like in that kind of community and then 
No, man. Just hearing people young, screaming, fainting. People screaming. And I, if you're young, I was six. I can remember the shoes I had on. So, you know, just it was a communal thing. It was cathartic, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. okay, so you, black schools, white schools. Yeah, just the whole, the whole intensity of everything and the kind of hatred and the anger about it and you going and dealing with a, uh, with a situation. It was, it was a situation you had to deal with. And it wasn't a, I don't talk about it a lot. As people talk about th- these kind of things. But in the, in, the, in the Ever Funky, I realized that my the white students I went to school were being gamed. So it's always kind of when a black person is talking, there's always something about what was done to us. Yes, no, that's obvious. Yeah. But there's something being done to a huge, a huge uh, segment of the United States population. And they're being gamed in an unbelievable way. And it continues to work. And, and over the years, I always wonder, how long is this going to work? It's like, if you, if you fought for the Confederate Army in the Civil War, you didn't have a plantation. Yeah. You're just a guy out there dying for something. For what reason? To keep another person who you weren't even have the benefit of making money off of them? And uh, that, that, that continues to today. I've seen it my entire adult life. If, if it's not Willie Harden, it's something else. Now it's the 400 people in Chicago who looted. It's always something, man, that will right. get 280 million people looking for a thousand. <laughs> it's just stupid. <laughs> right. Do you remember the, 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 the day that you, the sort of your, your brain shifted into realizing that they were being gained or is that something oh, yeah, you can... I remember? It. Yeah, I remember. It. What was the incident? Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to school uh, uh, and the school was so, was, was so prejudiced. The kids couldn't help it, man. They were ignorant. They were in the South. We are, nobody had money. And uh, a girl came who was not from Louisiana and she wasn't, prejudice toward me like the other kids. So I just asked her, why you don't have the same hatred that these other people have? And she said, oh, I'm from Montana. We hate Indians there. So <laughs> I remember thinking, damn. And then as we, as we were going to, we, we would go through schools. I always made pretty good grades. At one point I had a, a, another kid in our class tell me, he said, well, I think, I, I think you're just as good as me. I said, but do you think, I think that you're as good as me. If he looked at me, we both started to laugh because everything was not. You always hear about fights and battles. Yeah, we had them. We knuckled up. We had a lot of, lot of negativity, man. We had fights. We had a lot of stuff that I could, t- could tell you about. There'll be good stories, but we also laughed at stuff too. And uh, we, when I told, when I asked him that, we both started laughing. And yeah. I teased him. I said, "You need to pick that math grade up." And yeah. uh, you know, we and we, we became men. We we laughed about it later. We told, we were, we remember that a lot of us. When we got older. We remember all of these things that happened. Uh, when we were kids and we didn't have a sense of the world. So, yeah, then I, it, by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade, I started to think about it. You know, that it's, it's, a, it's a game being run on people. Right, because when you, just because when you have those moments of laughter and connection and, and the, you, you sort of see past the, the sort of black, white, left, right thing, you realize, like, well, we're all people. Why is this working? Right. Right. And why does this guy walk away with a different point of view? Right, and, you know, it's just a, it's a, you, you fall into systems and, with my with my friends that I've had since that time, and now we're middle aged. <laughs> we have kids that are grown, uh, 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 white kids, pe- people that I knew when we were kids. We say to each other as we've gotten older, "Man, can you believe this shit is still like this?" And it's uh the nature of our conversations are very natural and real. It's just it's basically like people who know each other. It's not it's not demographic conversation. And I've always been very clear about my positions too about black and white issues. I've never had to. Had that kind of handkerchief head, everything is cool. I'm just gonna smile my way through this. I was never that type of person. And they know me to not be that way. And it, it liberated them to not have to fall into a role too. Right. So I think a lot of what's in the ever funky 
is is that kind of hustle that's run on 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 them? But it's so well uh, uh, thought out and 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 sort of lyrically played through. I mean, the the libretto itself is like twelve pages and it's tight and you know it's very specific in a way and there is a humor to it because of this character. But but the right. insights you know around you know even you know around technology and around uh, freedom and around enslavement and around power and money. I mean. This seems like a, 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 almost like a life's work. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of the stuff you, you've done, but this seems to utilize this satirical character, this you know dark clown at the core of this thing, to really sort of hone in on this stuff in a very specific and 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 aggressive way. Was a great uh, was a great device. Uh, right. And like, how long did it take you to? What what was the inspiration for that guy? You know, not not it didn't take long. It just uh I mean, I I grew up in the era where we were always teasing and joking and rhyming. I mean, that's what we did in New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, you know, all the characters like Dolomite and the stuff in the 70s, just I mean, it's silly, but it was just what how what we what we would do. Stagger Lee, all those stories, the great Titanic, or you know, uh Petey Wheatstraw, these things that we we memorized as as kids. And uh, my little brother Ellis, we call him the Oracle. He and I have talked about this kind of stuff literally for 30 years. Yeah. He's the type of person who reads his studies all the time. So he reads so much and studies so much that I start writing down stuff when I would talk to him. I, his, his nickname is Lut. So I, so I, I call him the Oracle. We call him Lut. I said, Lut, tell me about this or that. And Lut start talking. I start writing stuff down. And then uh, all of my long pieces have like a, a kind of core or thing that I'm trying to say about our central humanity. I think this is most connected to a piece I wrote in 1999 entitled All Rise. And All Rise was about all of the kind of nations of the world coming together to speak a common language. And I was dealing with kind of claves and things that we all have in common. We had a big choir, and it was with us and the New York Philharmonic and the Morgan State Choir. And we later recorded it right after 9-11. We were actually the first group to start playing a live concert after 9-11 with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra and a combined Northridge uh, state choir and the uh, and Morgan, Morgan State Choir, and uh, so this piece is connected to that. It's just this is more more focused and localized, and and I guess it's more uh, satiric. Yeah, it's, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's the most satirical. Well, I had another one called "From the Plantation to the Penitentiary" that I did in two thousand seven, but that was for a small band that has a lot of satire in it, but not like this is a, a person talking. So you yeah. know, he's 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 a carnival barker. Yeah. It, it, but, you know, now the stuff that's going on, <laughs> and I always say it's not just the president. <laughs> the right. stuff that has been going on for a long time, now it's actually so satirical itself. The truth is so that it's almost hard to make a satire because people think you're being for real. Right. The, the farce has become uh, not funny. <laughs> right. It's like, <laughs> oh, wait, did this really happen? You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, man. Stuff, man. No, it didn't happen. Like, I don't yeah. know. It sounds like it could have happened. <laughs> no, man, I made that up. No, it happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my little brother calls it anti-reason. <laughs> anti-reason. He says, you know, anti-reason is always fighting with reason. He said, you got to be careful with anti-reason because once you start to defend anti-reason, you find yourself on the backside of your position. Mm. So you become more addicted to anti-reason than your own health and safety. And also, well, yeah, and also sort of like it, it's a it's a perception cancer. Like you, you know, like right. if you lock yeah. into anti-reason, <laughs> the, you'll disable your ability to see any sort of truth. 
That's right. right. Your acuity. Right. Your, your acuity yeah, suffers. Yeah. yeah. Well, that well, that well, the thing is, this guy's a carnival barker, but he's also letting you in on the trick, which is the ever funky lowdown, the breakdown of all of these systems that you talk about. When you get to the bottom line, he's revealing the secrets. Right. He turns around like his thing is he's run this game for for millennia. <laughs> yeah. And he thought he thought this group of people was going to be different. So in the end, he got angry. And he, he said, he's so tough because he gave you a wild card. He gave you something to help you defeat the game. And you still, you didn't even remember who the wild card was. Like, it didn't do any good. So he got angry. And he said, listen, this game is not even about them. So he says, I, I gave you all a clue. Now I'm going to just reveal the game. Too. Right. And uh, so he flips around from being kind of an anti-hero that just he couldn't take it. He couldn't take another iteration of the game. Well, ultimately, what it comes down to is that you earn the right to do nothing. Right. <laughs> We're going to take care of everything for right. you. Right. And you just sit there. <laughs> Nothing. You just sit there like a like a dummy and eat your ice cream right. and watch your thing. You, you, right. That's right. You only do things that will benefit you. Right. Right. Like if you don't get a bit. I read that. I read that in a, in a, in a speech that Abraham Lincoln uh, gave. Uh, it's actually in the, in the Lincoln Douglas debates where he was talking about the perils of of democracy, people would only do things that was that is the end of this paragraph. paragraph he, he says he used the word self-interest. Mm. That people would, would get to a point where they only serve their self-interest. So that's actually where that concept came. Well, from. it's interesting. I like I realize that now, you know that that the idea of tolerance and the idea of empathy are 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 choices. Right. I mean, you can be naturally empathetic, but that doesn't mean you have to honor it. And, you know, you right. and tolerance in, you know, without tolerance, democracy doesn't work. Well, without without it, without an overview and an embrace, you know, like, like when I went to school, I remember I would always if you called me a name, I was going to fight you. So I got into a lot of scrapes, but this is not a movie. So one person is not really going to beat five or you're not. You yeah. know, you're not you're going to. So at one point. After two or three years of that, one of the people in my class, one of the big guy in our class, is a German guy named John. He said, man, you're going to fight everybody? I said, if they use the N-word on me, yeah. And there's the South in the 60s. People are used to yeah. it, early 70s. He said, next time, you, next time they jump on you, I'm jumping in too. And the next time, he did jump in. <laughs> so it was just something you couldn't... <laughs> You couldn't predict that that was would he happen on your from side or his, uh, the other side. Yeah, he was on my side. He jumped in with me. Man, if I had to have him and them, that'd have been. But hey, I was. I had accepted that. I that I don't. I had accepted. It. Wasn't wasn't. After you accept, you got to do something. You 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 do it. You're gonna. Yeah. Well, that that's but, something that. Uh, but you know, Mister Game repeats a lot. What was it uh, when yeah. you do something? What, what is it? What you do is what you will do, and that you do makes it true. Yeah, yeah. What is that? That you? What you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you do is what you will do. Like when you do something, you're going right. to do it. And that you do it makes it true. That's from, from a friend of mine that's a police officer in Chicago. He's retired now. I was the best man at his wedding. He told me he hated to go on domestic violence calls. He said he would go in her home and it'd be like a brother killed another brother or a husband and a wife or a wife. And a, he said, and, and almost every time he would walk into that home, he would, he would tell them they would be almost in shock. He would say, Man, you you committed a crime. You know, you you killed them. You see, you have to bring them back to earth. He said, and they would always say, but I was just, but it but it was just like they, don't, they didn't understand. Like that sometimes the rage would overwhelm them. It's the mess been years of anger builds up. And I was always uh struck by how he because he would reenact it. He had seen it, of course, uh tens, if not hundreds of times. Huh. 
and, and he, he, he said that he would have to bring them into the reality of the moment. So that's when, why I had Mr. Games say, that you do makes it true. Like, you know, when you, when you act on something, it becomes, even if it's not real, even if like, even if Adolf Hitler said Jewish people had tails or they did this or they did that, none of that is true. But you killing them and putting them in concentration camps, that's true. You putting people on ships and boats, selling them, uh, sleeping with, their, with, 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 with women uh, who, who you owned, you, all the things you did, maybe none of why you did it was true, but that you did it is true. So that's what Mr. Game is trying to tell you. He's trying to bond you, right. you to him. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah, I thought I thought that the section in on the record that I really got, like, there's a couple pieces that really stood out to me. The stuff you wrote in the libretto about, you know, causing division within the domestic situation, the, the, the death of romance, <laughs> the death of intimacy, right. you know, in the name of, uh, of um, uh, it wasn't property, transaction. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought that was great, and but I what I really liked was like I I you know I can see the whole history of how you play music on these records, right? You know I can see all of it. I, I don't know if I can identify the classical so much, but was but what was interesting to me was that uh, the yes no when you get to yes no that w- that was the only time it was specifically like fucking bebop right like you know you're doing that thing that back and forth like that right. argument with doing those blasting those right. kind of hard bop riffs right. and shit and I was like no oh, there's that. Right. that that was the only time right. on the record right. well you know the music the music is a, is a counterbalance to the word uh-huh and with the orchestra we play so much music that's actually a lot of improvising Ted Nash right. is playing the alto and Chris Crenshaw is playing the trombone. So I got them, we in the background playing, um, um, playing these kind of violent hits and this chord progression. And him and Chris, they're going for their thing. And they both have a, a kind of very, very kind of free way of playing, a way of hearing music. So they were perfect for that argument. All I had to do was say fight. Man. Yeah. <laughs> they got into their right. thing. Right. But it, like, I did, it just felt structurally that was part one of the looser parts. Is that, pro- is yeah. that possible? Yeah, in terms of the music, right. yeah. yeah. That's like, that was like definitely. Yeah. You know, yeah, no question. Well, I mean, like, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to to, to figure out about you is the the decision, because you started as a classical musician, right? No, I started playing jazz and funk. I mean, my my dad is a jazz musician, and I'm from New Orleans, so I started playing just tunes, like jazz tunes. And and the first band I played in was Fairview Baptist Church Marching Band when I was eight. We played stuff like uh, uh, Just a Closer Walk With Thee, uh, Just a Little While to Stay Here, you know, New Orleans tunes. Then the second gig, real gig I played was of all kind of pop music at an elementary school dance when I was 11. Uh-huh. And that was stuff that was on the radio, Stevie Wonder. Sure. And then, uh, you know, I was always trying to play modern jazz. Then I met a guy who turned me on to a classical record, and I won a concerto competition to play the Haydn trumpet concerto. Then I was 14. But b- during that time, I was playing funk gigs. I joined a funk band when I was just turned 13. And I was always trying to play with my father. I mean, we just couldn't play good enough. We always sitting in with it, but we jazz, you know, it was too hard for us to play. But my brother Branford and I, we still would get out there and try. <laughs> to play with your, and, you your know, dad's band? Oh, man, we always trying to play with him, but we couldn't have changes and stuff were behind What us. kind of stuff was he playing, your dad? He wrote he wrote a lot of music. James Black, great drummer from New Orleans. A lot of their music is in the Ever Funky Lowdown. Oh, yeah? They, uh, they had their own original tunes, and they played all, any tune in the jazz, like stuff that, I, mean, I remember the first song he ever wrote out for me was Someday My Prince Will Come. He wrote out Miles' of solo. He said, man, check this solo out. And, uh, man, just the changes. If you don't know how to play on chords, <laughs> man, that stuff. Vols Hot, Sonny Rollins. Yeah. Uh, 
Charlie Parker's material like Confirmation, John Coltrane, Giant Steps, Countdown, yeah. real difficult song yeah. to play. You know, all the, all the stuff in the, in, the, in the jazz canon, my father and them were always playing it to a very limited audience. I mean, people, I would go to his gigs all the time. There was never a lot of people at him. But he, he and Alvin Batiste, they would- That make you sad? No, nah, no, because I, I grew up seeing that. I, did, I mean, I knew people didn't like that style of yeah. music. So it was, I, I thought, man, they believe in this music. And they, they didn't complain about it that much. Ah. I mean, my father, he, he believed in the music. And then when I got older, I would ask him, man, you ever think about playing something people want to hear? He said, man, then I'll be sounding like y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so he, was, he was never bitter about it, you know? And I would tease him a lot. Like when he played the piano, he played the piano once in the, in the high regency. And, and people would just talk over him. So maybe I was 15 or 16. And, you know, I was playing gigs like a professional probably at that time. And I sat on the stool with him at the piano. I looked at him. I said, man, you don't get tired of people talking all over you when, you, when you're playing. You're just not listening to nothing. You're playing. <laughs> he looked over at me while he kept playing. He said, do you get tired of eating? <laughs> <So> <laughs> he's like, man, this is paying for you to eat your food. You better shut up and sit here. And so, you know, my dad, he was funny like that. What, what do you think it was, though? Like, you know, when you think about it, because, I mean, that, that really is the thing about the journey of jazz for some people, because it did remain relatively unpopular during large chunks of time. So yeah. the people that were playing, it must have had, like, what you, what you said, a belief in it. But they were on yeah. some sort of journey. I mean, what is it? Well, you got to you have to have education to, to understand the music. I mean, it's a, I grew up with it. I didn't like it. You know, I was always hearing it's just they understood the implication of music, the spirituality of it. And as a group activity, man, playing jazz is the most cathartic thing if you got a good swing and rhythm section. Because yeah. you're creating these ideas and they just keep going and other people in the group are developing them. But if you're an audience member and you don't, you, you, you're used to listening to kind of stuff on the radio, you might be hearing 30 seconds of music repeated over and over again. Man, to sit through 10 minutes of a, hey, that's a lot. Yeah. Because I sat through many nights of hearing them play being like, <laughs> Damn, what, what are they playing? But something happens that you hear it one day. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah. Do you remember what what was it that made, what, when did you hear it? You know, I think I was like 11, going into 12. And I, 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 me and my brother were joking about, about the fact that the people on our albums had on wild costumes and looked stupid. And the people on our daddy's albums had on suits and stuff. And they looked like they had sense. And we're just laughing and playing. So we put on one of the records, Giant Steps. I thought, man, you know, that's like the first time because my father had a picture of him with Coltrane and James Black on the on the yeah. wall, and they loved Train. Train had come to hear them play in the 1960s, 1962. So he had a picture of them with Train, and I know they, how much they respect the Train. So Train was dead by this time. So I said, man, I'm gonna put that record on. The next day, I put Train on, put Giant Steps on, and you know, I started liking it. I said, wow. Then I started to listen. Okay, Train played with Miles. I listened to Miles' record. Miles started with Dizzy. I checked out Dizzy's yeah. record. I, I, and then I met Dizzy. And, you know, so then I, all, all the people I kind of knew from being around my daddy, whenever people come to New Orleans, they play with him. And uh, then from there, I kind of, I got into the music. You know? Yeah. From there, I got into the music. And, and I started to be kind of obsessed with it. Then I started wondering if I could learn how to play it. Yeah. Because the kind of music we was playing that we called jazz wasn't really jazz. It was like instrumental pop music and funk, which I like playing. I had a great time. But I still was wondering, I wonder if I could play, you know, with the same kind of thing like with Clifford Brown and then play with her. You know, and, and, and that's what started me kind of on the path of, 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 of trying to learn how to play the music. So it was, a, it, was, it was like you knew you had to study it. There was no question about that. 
mean, <laughs> you didn't you didn't think you were gonna make money studying it, but you knew you you weren't you weren't gonna play it. You you know, even my daddy, I would go sit in with him sometimes, and I had learned how to circular breathe. That's where you can go and just never stop playing. And man, I do my circular breathing thing, and I would go into my thing, go into my crouch, and I got doing my funk gigs, and I just all the people just erupt in applause. Yeah, you know, I hold a note for two minutes. And when I playing, my daddy called me over the piano. He come here, man. I come over there. I'd be like, yeah, man, you're in that solo. And he said, hey, man, the circus is down the street. <laughs> <laughs> he would just douse me, man. He just, <laughs> but I would have to laugh because I know he was, he was right. You know, but he was getting <laughs> on you because he, you were just showing off. Yeah, play some music, man. We're not up here doing yeah. that. You know what? You, you're not playing enough. So, what would determine to him? What, what would what would be playing music? What determines that? You know, you're creating themes, you have development, you're hearing your way through car changes, you're interacting with the group, you're doing all of that. Right, you know, right, right. You can't, man, you're getting in all of that. And you're concentrating on what you're playing. You're trying to touch people with the depth of what you're saying rather than a, a kind of external kind of kind of thing. Like he called it the shiny suit. You don't put the shiny suit on, you plug it in, and the lights go on. People say, wow, look at those lights. He was more just, uh, he was basic, like communicate with people, man. They, they will follow you if you keep communicating with them. Huh. But then I would tease him and say, well, Dick, you ain't communicate with them because they don't come out to see you play. <laughs> they see in our funk band, we packed it every gig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, but he wasn't against us. You know, he, he came and he sat in on our gigs. And he, I remember we played a dance at a high school, McMain Senior High School. My father came and played. We played a Crusader song called Keep That Same Old Feeling. And it has a bridge section. And one of our, our other trumpet players was a, a, a guy named John Roche. Lebo was his nickname. And he said, man, you can't have your daddy sitting on this tune because of that bridge, sec- that section. He ain't going to be able to hear that. I said, man, my daddy's a jazz musician. He ain't going <laughs> to listen to it one time. He's going to stop playing it. Man, they played that bridge the first time my daddy listened to it. That second time, he just played through it. And I remember my boy looked at me. He had never heard, like, something out of the bebop tradition. Uh-huh. He looked at me and said, man. What is that shitty you playing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but because I because we had we grown up listening to him, yeah. we we knew you know what the magic of, of 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 playing and being able to play. Now when you put, but that was sort of like you were you were kind of on the classical. That was going to be your thing, right? No, never. I always wanted to play jazz. I loved it. I mean, and I still love classical music. No, that was never my thing. I, I always I came to New York to play jazz because I wanted to be like my father. Like my essential thing was I wanted to do what they wanted to do. Like they wanted, my father wanted to come to New York. All the jazz musicians I had met when I was growing up, Clark Terry, uh, Sweet Edison, I loved all of them. They were like uncles to me. And I wanted to make them proud. And I wanted to, to I wanted them to feel like I could play. Yeah. That was my main thing. And they were always looking at me like, man, you said one day you're going to learn how to play. So I love classical music and I love playing it. And I was fortunate to be, to, to, to get a little bit of reputation for playing it. And I practice a lot, and I love, still to this day I love orchestral music. And the one thing I'm grateful for is my father was was not prejudiced against music, so he always told me, "Man, listen to this music, or study it, or check this anything, even playing in a funk yeah. band." Which at first I didn't want to do. Then I was 11. My daddy said, "Man, play in the band." So the now the classical though, the classical music, like what do you carry? Because I know that you, I can feel that. You know, just by listening to these longer pieces that you did in this one, the ever funky lowdown, that you know you put a lot in. You're a perfectionist. You write this. You write this stuff out. That you, you know it's tight. So is that something that you just is part of your personality, or is that something you learn from classical music? No, well, I developed it. I was playing classical pieces all through high school, so I was hearing longer form pieces. I never forget 
I played a concert of Mahler's Second Symphony. I was at the Eastern Music Festival. I'd never left home in Greensboro, North Carolina. And the last, final concert was Mahler's Second Symphony. I thought, damn, it was such a big, massive piece with a choir. And, uh, but I couldn't fit because the forms were so different. But I had a kind of gift for just hearing form. Uh-huh. So I was in theory classes in high school. I could always kind of tell the form of Beethoven's Symphony, the form of, of Sibelius, the form of, you know, these pieces. What do you mean? But when you say form, I, it's I, just like the, 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 the rep. What is the form exactly? The repetition? How you get from A to B to C oh, okay, to D. I get, how you I, get from it, one place it, it, to it another. It makes sense. What you repeat. Yeah, yeah. How do you, what is the cycle? Everything is on a cycle. And uh, every, there are many different cycles. There's sonata form, there's this. Now, of course, the music is so wide open, there are many types of composite forms. But it wasn't until I heard Jelly Roll Martin, Library of Congress recordings, and he was explaining how the pearls or these pieces he wrote, how he constructed them with sections and transitions. And then I noticed Duke Ellington was doing the same thing. And then when I was in my late 20s, I started to write longer form pieces. Before then, I didn't know how to do it. And the first piece I wrote was called Blue Interlude. I think I was 28. 27, 20, somewhere up in there. And, and then I figured out how to, uh, to, to, to have my thematic development a certain way and how to connect these forms and use grooves and the kind of psychological development of a piece through grooves. And from that time, I've always worked on these pieces and they have a lot of outline. I spent a lot of time outlining them, determining what keys I would go and what I'm going to do. And uh, so I became kind of obsessed with working on them like a puzzle. Yeah, well, that's good. It's nice to have a, a, a compulsive hobby. <laughs> Yeah, man. Yeah. I always tell people I laugh. When you write really big pieces for orchestra, I always say, if you want to waste a lot of time, do this. Because, man, when you're marking parts with dots and dashes and crescendos and sforzandos, that's time consuming. Yeah. You might have 750,000 notes in a piece, and you're putting stuff over over most of those notes. Yeah. But, like, once it, once it comes to life, it makes it all worth it, right? Yeah. For, for me and for, for all of us, I'm fortunate because in our orchestra, we have like 10, 11 arrangers and everybody composes and we all play each other's music. So for all of us, yeah, when we start working on our music, we get obsessed, obsessed with it. And, and we all play each other's music. So when you got to New York, when you got to Juilliard and you want to be a jazz musician to sort of like honor your dad's dream in some degree, what was the state of jazz at the time? What year was it? This is 1979. Do you do you put you think about it that way? Yeah, people were playing. Woody Shaw had a great band. Betty Carter was fantastic. Uh, she was she was playing all kinds of music. I would go out every night at 11 o'clock at night and me and just go all over all the clubs. The Brecker Brothers had Seventh Avenue South. People were playing in the Village Vanguard. A lot of the like Tommy Flanagan and I mean, people were playing. They were they were playing all over the place. He had a lot of the great musicians. And uh, you could go out and hear you could go out and hear people jazz. Many, I mean, people were struggling. The scene was, you know, it was a struggle. And I also played with some of the avant-garde musicians. I played with David Murray. I played with Lester Bowie. The scene was scuffling in terms of the same, with not having enormous amounts of people around it. But musicians were dedicated to playing it. Betty Carter, she was unbelievable. So you played with some uh, some of the avant-garde guys. Yeah, I played with the hot trumpets, Lester Bowie, hot trumpets. I was sitting with people. But I finally got a gig with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messenger. So that's how, how I learned how to play, was playing with Art. Wow, Art, Art if it was not for he Art. Played for, what did he play for, like 50 years, 60 years? Oh, man, he was, you never saw anything like that. <laughs> that, and that. And that's considered hard bop, right? Well, it, when he was in the 50s, it was. But by the time I played with him, he was playing a lot of different styles, some that didn't have names. But he was, he was a phenomenon, man. He was just as a, as a person and, and with his playing, his musicianship and his belief in the music, his integrity. It's, 
and we loved him, and we all called him Boo. It was like being in a family. Yeah. So when you get when you you get when you signed on with him, you were like 21, 22? No, I was eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. And 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 you're part of this jazz messenger legacy. Man, you know. You're the I, you're one of the guys. No, nah, so I was what, sad. I wasn't. <laughs> I was up on the bandstand, but I wasn't playing enough to say I was part of the legacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, what'd you learn from him specifically? Uh, what what working was about. Yeah. And about and what a, a good rhythm section was about. Well, I mean, he's absolute absolute <laughs> swinger, but he yeah. worked like he was yeah. about working. And did you, where'd you guys tour? Did you tour around the world with him? All all over America. I mean, we were struggling. We were on like a chitlin circuit. We were in a van. And man, that first tour, we went from New York to Detroit, played gigs, Detroit to Seattle, Seattle, San Francisco, San Francisco, Houston. I mean, we we used to call ourselves the jazz passengers. Like, <laughs> we 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 understood something. He gave us a good, clear understanding of what working was, man. Was did, did uh, <laughs> were were people coming out? We, you know, in some places, but we were playing mainly clubs. People would come out. We never we didn't play big venues. Yeah, people came out, but but you know we were sometimes we would struggle. It's, it's it's always been it's always been a struggle, man. When you when you try to maintain a certain integrity, it's a struggle. In 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 anything, in anything, in anything, it, it doesn't matter. So so you got to New York in time to see a lot of people that were still around that have been around. Since the yeah. since the beginning of modern jazz, yeah, and then but there was also another contingent of people who were doing. I mean, there there seems to be this other world of Kenny G's and and <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's that's more like instrumental pop music, and that was not is 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 played up like there's like some battle or something between us, but it's not. There was never Kenny well, not G a battle. Was but now I'm throwing but, football with Kenny G. I didn't even know who it was. We we're throwing a football. Yeah, where did that happen? It's some jazz festival, mm. but it's, it's like I always tell people Ornette Coleman. <laughs> let's just take that for example. If you read like, Coleman, all right. If you read articles, somebody say Ornette Coleman free jazz. This hard bop. This Ornette Coleman in the 1950s lived in New Orleans. He yeah. stayed in the home of, of of a trumpet player named Melvin Lasty, who we call Papi. Melvin yeah. Lasty was the the uncle of Herlin Riley. Herlin Riley played drums with me for many years in in the Fairview Baptist Church band. That I played in at eight, Herlin was playing trumpet at that time. He's about 13. Herlin is one of the greatest drummers in the world. And for many years, Herlin played with me. Ornette, Ed Blackwell, who played drums with Ornette on some of his earliest records, grew up playing with my father. And he left New Orleans because of some racism. His old lady was white. And he went up to New York. He played with, with Ornette. So if I tell people, yeah, I, I saw Ornette or I talked to Ornette or this, they think, well, you know, you and Ornette and jazz. Arnett was more like a like a, a member of my family or something. It was more like uh, I grew up hearing about Arnett. When I first started talking to Arnett, he said, your daddy and Alvin Batiste came to see me in Los Angeles. They drove all the way from New Orleans to Los Angeles, and they could knock on my door and say, man, we just came here to see what you was doing in the late 50s. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of times you don't you don't realize kind of our our bloodlines. It's not it's not the way it's, it's, it's depicted with a lot of strife in it. And that's just not the truth of it. In, oh, in, term, in terms of the styles of jazz. Yeah, in terms of who we are as people and, and how, we, how we interact with each other. Right, right. You, you, know? you guys are just, you're doing what you do, but, you know, the bond is deeper than, you know, like it's, he's doing free jazz, I'm doing this, this. He's doing that, I'm doing this. Nobody is talking about that and going to people's house, arguing and fighting with them and all of that. You know, yeah. We might have an argument, but it's not going to be about what style you're playing. And if you have an age difference, like between me and, and Arnett, as great as he was, no arguing. I was trying to learn something. 
So when I saw him, I wasn't saying nothing, but how could I do this? Or could I do this? Mr. Coleman. I wasn't calling him Ornette either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like as I got older, I realized this, the world is open, man. People come up with things, they have creativity, great. It's kind of like yeah. that when people ask me now, what, up, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? What do you think about protests? I say, you know, our, pr- our problems are so pervasive and so widespread. I want any act that we go towards equality for everybody. I want as many of those acts as we have acts of corruption and acts of denying people. There's no one way to be corrupt. So let all of the, everything, yeah, great. People are doing stuff. They want equality. They want to do this. Fantastic. You give yeah. some money, great. You're protesting, fantastic. You write an article, great. You, you're arguing with somebody at the barbershop, fan, great. You know, you need all of that. You, you, you've been not, instead of, well, you need to do this, or this needs to be one way. It needs to be many ways. And that, there's one person's way is not enough to solve the problem. It's too large. It's too pervasive. It's been around too long. It needs all of us to just be a part of. And and I it feels like in in terms of the current moment and that you're releasing this record in what I don't think you could have anticipated, you know the 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 chaos and anger that's bubbling up now when you released it, but it all seems to fit together, right? Right. Well, I wrote it in 2018, so I I had no idea that this would this would uh pandemic would happen and it would expose our, our faults. I could see our faults, of course, because I mean, I'm from our country and have been around the world, but I also see other people's faults too. So that's part of me not having that kind of us versus them. Uh, I, I've had the opportunity to be in other people's countries and talk with them and see how they deal with the problems they have. And, it, it, and at the end of like in the record, uh, you sort of choose to you sort of elevate and focus on on Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. Out of that period, what what made you choose you know her 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 impact? Well, my mama loved her. Oh, she loved Fannie Lou, and Fannie Lou was the eldest of twenty kids. She grew up in the rural South. She had just a, a natural kind of ability. She, she a, a voracious reader at a place where you were kept from reading, and she got involved in the political the political process late with the, with the, uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She had an integrated party. She brought to the convention. She ran for, for Congress. She didn't win, but she, she, she sang spirituals. She had a depth of insight. She fought that fight. She fought that fight. She came back. She was beaten. She was shot at. She was tried, everybody tried to turn around. She never turned around. And she spoke the language of the people. She came the longest distance. And she was, was all about uh, realizing what the Constitution put in front of us. And then she went back to the community, started Freedom Forum, teaching people how to have to deal with health, to deal with raising kids, small business organizations. She was a powerhouse, man. And my yeah. mother absolutely loved her. So uh-huh. I, I grew up knowing about Fannie Lou just because my mama was always saying, uh, boy, you need to listen to Fannie Lou. Or Child, Fannie Lou Hamer is the final word on everything. Like She loved yeah. Fannie Lou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She so that's sort Fannie of Lou. so that's a tribute to Fannie Lou and your mother. Well, you know, I mean, Fannie Lou. My mom is looked at Fannie Lou and Fannie yeah. Lou because Mr. Game said, "Here, I'm gonna give you a freedom fighter." So I, I, I had to pick somebody who people didn't remember because he's gonna right. make the point. This freedom fighter, and he put some all Harry Tubman, you know, Lincoln Stephens. Yeah. He said all of these yeah. people did stuff, and you, you don't even remember them. So, right. uh, yeah, Fannie Lou was heavy man. Is, yeah, I I had to do I had to do a little homework myself. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, all yeah. of us, you know. If it wasn't for my mom, I wouldn't know who she was. Now, and and when you, okay, I guess there's a bigger question in terms of 
the impact or, or, or you know, how the, these ideas, I mean, these are ideas that you have, all the, all the ideas that you have about music is here, all the ideas you have about, about uh, power in the world and it, it, is, in this, is in this piece, you know, about religion, about technology, about freedom. And and then you, underneath it is all your music and the people you got singing and, and doing all the other uh, things. So, because for me, I listen to something like this. It's like everybody should hear this. Everybody should understand what this is talking about. But you're still up against the fragmentation of the media landscape against, you know, like what is it jazz? Is it where, where does it fit in? So how do you kind of cross that? How do you how do you accommodate that idea that you put all this work in with these these great ideas that you, and, and they're put in a way that people can understand and, and, and it doesn't get out there as much as you want it to. Well, everything is a continuum. Mm. You know, you're just part of a long progression and a procession. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Like I, I mentioned, our orchestra, we all work on music and uh, we are, we are serious. And the, the pandemic has made us be even more serious. Our organization is serious. When we, when we recorded it, our carpenters, and the, the, our, our stage crew built the stage for us. You should have saw what they built in our studio. Yeah, I mean, you can't make people want to be a part of something. The music is great, and we've been a part of it. And uh, uh, I'm happy to be a part of the music. And you can't you can't determine where, when when people listen to your music or whether they will like it. Or all you can do is make it be as good as you can possibly make it. And uh, you know, I'm dedicated to it. I, it's been a blessing for me. My father was dedicated. And all the great musicians and the Kit Kats in my band are dedicated. So you hear the way they play the music on the record. We recorded that in nine hours. We did a yeah. session in a day and three hours. I was thinking, man, this is 50-something. It's going to take us a long time to record that. The, the, the orchestra was like, no, it's not. <laughs> we coming in here to play, man. Take care of business. And, <laughs> and that's, that's how they've been for the, for the last 20 years. You know, all these years, for me, it's been a blessing doing it. At Jazz and Lincoln it, Center? Man, it's been so much of a blessing meeting people, not just in the orchestra. Our board members, people who have been a part. I didn't know about any of this kind of stuff, man. I'm a guy from Little Farms, Louisiana. And to look around and see all the people who've participated in it and what they've given to it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's moving. My singers, when they finish, every, all of us in the band, because they're like the age of, the oldest of, our, of us, they're like the age of our, what our daughters would be that age. Yeah. Man, we were getting full thinking about the, the amount of work they put in, how great they sounded. They did an unbelievable job because a lot of their parts are really hard. It doesn't sound it. And well, I mean, I think that speaks to also, you know, what the power of it is about, you know, getting back to, you know, realizing when you were a kid that your father, what drove people was a belief in the music and then the understanding of what it's like to be in the community of musicians or to be engaged in a piece of music with other people where the, where, where the, the dialogue is happening. Right. That's right. And that, that's why I believe in democracy. It seems stupid to say it now. People think, oh, man, you know, you, I never have been like a handkerchief head. Or, or, and it caused me a lot of problems with critics. I never was like a person who just go along with whatever white folks say you need to go along with. That's never my vibe. Even when it was, was behind weapons at stake. So now I'm too old to be in that mode. It's not a kind of mindless optimism. This is a system that requires participation. And if we allow uh, uh, ourselves to be duped and we don't realize the possibility, especially for those in lower economic classes, which is, which is firmly where I come from. Uh, though I'm not there now, I firmly come from there. 
it, I understand the importance of participation because I'm a jazz musician. If I stand up on the bandstand and play all the solos, musicians not going to play that way. If I'm dictating every moment of the music, it's not going to sound good. When you open the music, when our band started, everybody arranging, man, we played 200% better because we're playing each other's music. We start to have ownership over everything. Then you develop trust. You're not the only one who can do something. A lot of people can do things. That's yeah. one of my father's sayings. Hey, man, it's a lot of talent, people homeless. He talked to a homeless person for a long time. Man, what you talking with this dude about? Man, this cat used to be an architect. <laughs> he come back and tell you the whole story. He <laughs> yeah. said, man, there's a lot of talent all over the world. Don't be fooled. And I think what we learned in our, in our orchestra, in our group, was when you open up the floor, man, you have a much better time. You don't want to just listen to yourself play all night. I, I always noticed that I, I, the last time I went, because uh, the guy, uh, Greg, Greg Scholl. Oh, yeah, that's my yeah. man. Yeah, he's great. You know, he he hooks me up when I go to the city, you know, because I, I, I would just go. The last time I went, it was uh, Marcus. Uh, who is the, the bass player from uh, Electric Miles? Marcus what? Miller. Marcus Miller. <laughs> That's a good dude, too, man. Hard to I, go. Yeah, Marcus I saw Miller him do uh, Yeah, he did a night of it was just uh, like some pieces from from that period of Miles, right? From Electric Miles. But right. like in any jazz, like I got when I watch the old footage in terms of the democracy thing. There's something amazing about when one guy's soloing and then there's a couple other guys just standing around. You better be listening to what they're playing because when you start playing, you got to continue what they were playing. That's what, that's what they're doing. Yeah, they better, you better listen, man, because the music has yeah, got to be continuous. So you got to really follow them. So when you, wh what were some of the, uh, like just looking back real quick in terms of... Uh, because I know you recorded with Dizzy Gillespie. You did. You yeah, did a record yeah. with Dizzy. And, sure. Yeah, with Dizzy. Yeah. And and you've worked with a lot of guys that you grew up listening to. Yeah. It, yeah it, is is that is that about the biggest thrill in some ways? Yeah. No? Yeah. To, yeah. To, yeah. No. To know them because they're so soulful. Yeah. Even the ones that didn't like you, like Betty Carter, never really liked me, but <laughs> she had so much integrity. Man, I loved yeah. her. It just I <laughs> yeah. saw a concert of her in Germany one night, and she was singing so good. And she had so much belief in the music. She taught younger musicians how to play. She wrote arrangements. And yeah. uh, me and her got into it one night. And man, I, I finally got tired of her mess with me and I cussed her out. And she looked at me and she said, if some of that passion would come through your horn, we might actually hear something. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the way that they were, you know. I love Sarah Vaughn. I was playing with her. And I learned this one obscure Duke Ellington song. Tonight I should sleep with a smile on my face. But I didn't really know all the chords. So I messed up the bridge. How many people in the world know that song? You know, this woman sat down to the piano and yeah. played the hell out of the entire song. Because I, I I didn't know at the time that she had played second piano in Billy Eckstein's band. And uh, she truly could play. And right. when she finished playing all these flourishes and stuff, she looked at me and she said, you have to learn these songs thoroughly, baby. Like, you didn't get that bridge together. You need, here's the progression. She showed me the progression before she was making faces. And she said, you got to be more thorough. And I just started laughing. I said, man, I was 21 at that time. So, you know, John Lewis, i tell you another story, but I was complaining to John Lewis, great piano player, the music director of Modern Jazz Quartet, about some critique I was mad about. Man, he did this, wrote this, blah, blah, blah. So he was listening to it, man, he's patient. After a while, he looked at me. He said, you know, he said, he said too much complaining, uh, even about an insult given up to someone, is really a form of, a, a veiled form of egotism. Can mm. we rehearse this music? <laughs> so, you know they were always full of stuff that like you know yeah. full, 
great Swiss Edison. Y'all got so many stories from being around them so much. Uh, did you have a, a, a relationship with uh, Miles at all? I did, but it was very rocky. Because when, when I came up, Miles, you know, you start playing a lot of electronic music. I was like, man, I'm playing jazz. When I first met Miles, I had a derby on and a polyester suit. And he looked at me, he could tell I was country. So he said, so you the police, huh? So I went to Herbie. I said, man, what is he talking about? I'm the police. He said, man, he made you the one come to clean this shit up. So we started laughing. I didn't understand what he was saying. Then he started saying jazz wasn't nothing, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't this, I wasn't that. So I started to bite back at him. And then, uh, then I jumped on his bandstand. That made him really mad at me, man. I jumped on him one night in Vancouver. I was sitting in the thing with cats in my band, and it was like, man, I heard Miles on the radio saying, you wasn't shit, your daddy wasn't shit. You got to deal with this. So we, I made a bet with them. I said, man, I'm going to go jump on him tonight. And I went out there and jumped on him. He cut the band off. He was really mad. And uh, so after that, me and him had a real, you know, he didn't like that. He wanted to be the only one picking on you. He didn't like to be picked back on. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I still learned a lot from him before that. He, uh, it's, it's three or four things he told me that I thought were really insightful. And you could see why he was the genius that he was. He just had another type of a, uh, of intelligence. I remember one question he asked me was interesting. He said, how did you figure this out? About, and I knew what he was talking about because he wasn't talking about my plan because I couldn't play. It's, it's like a gauntlet of misinformation that you have to see your way through to figure out what playing is. And uh, it's, it's more about just acuity. And he actually understood that. It's hard for an older person to understand what a younger person has to face in their generation. Mm. Very difficult. Right. Now I know that I'm much older. It's very hard for me to look at a 20-year-old person and understand what are the obstacles in their way. Right. You know, whereas he could, he was thinking about that and could see it. And what, what else did you learn from him? Um, about sound. I asked him something about sound. And he said, you know, nobody can teach you nothing about sound. That sound is so deep within, you, within what you're playing. And if you want to develop your sound, you don't get a progression like you do if you're working on scales. You got to go deep inside and stay in there for a long time. And then it starts to evolve. And he said Dizzy had told him to hold longer notes. And he told me when you soloing, hold longer notes. He said, and then you have to be comfortable when you rest to hear your sound. See, if you're playing, you don't never rest. Then he told me, as long as you're playing with people that's playing loud, you're not going to develop your sound. And it made me laugh because he, he, they were playing loud on his bandstand, you know, with a lot of electronic instruments. <laughs> but then I understood what he was saying and, and things like that. But he was smart conceptually, too about other musicians. He talked about Fats Navarro, about Dizzy's playing, who Duke Ellington was. He had a lot, of, a lot of information. And he seemed to be able, as time went on, to really surrender stage to other musicians. He didn't seem to be that uh, yeah. egotistical on stage. Yeah, but then he wasn't playing his chops. He wasn't playing that much. Yeah. I mean, by that, by that point. But he was always like that. Even and I when met- he was younger. Yeah, yeah, he loved great musicians. He loved Train. He loved... He had the greatest bands. He uh, yeah. He's very smart. So in addition to like his ability, he also understood a lot about the fundamentals of the music. He understood who Louis Armstrong was. He knew how to break his ensemble up. And he knew how to give musicians space. And he inspired them to play because he believed in the music. Yeah, because I talked to, uh, I met Herbie Hancock briefly uh, at a, a thing. I, I, uh, I hosted a conversation with him uh, around that Blue Note movie. Right. And, you know, it just seems like, you know, Miles had a profound effect on how he conceived of, oh, yeah. of how to play. And yeah. I and I had to, like, sort of start to get into Herbie. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of astounding. That guy's an astounding uh, musician. Yeah, he is. And he was playing with Miles Young. 
Yeah. Miles, Herbert was 23 playing with Miles. Yeah. Tony Williams was was uh, 17. Yeah. So when you hear them play, the kind of clarity they play with. Now, I had the opportunity to play with Herbie, Ron, and Tony when I was 19. I went on the road with them, Herbie Hancock Quartet. Uh-huh. And, man, I had no idea what they were playing. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and the first time we played a song called The Sorcerer, I never even heard chord structures like that. Yeah, I'm two years from New Orleans and playing a funk band. Man, they started playing, and Ron Carter told me before the first gig we played in the Playboy, in the, in the, in the, in the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And I was getting ready to get, walk on stage with them, and I was thinking, man, we had only had one rehearsal. I said, I have no idea what in the world I'm doing up here with these musicians. And Ron tapped me uh, uh, on, on my leg. He said, listen, man, if, if you get lost, just listen to me. I'm going I'm to be, be following you. And don't worry about shit. And wow. we went out there. And that, <laughs> man, I can't tell you how that made me feel. You have no idea the nerves. <laughs> it's one thing to be nervous. You're going to mess up a part. It's another thing. You have to improvise on something. You have no idea what you are playing. <laughs> But that was so, that was a deep moment for me. Just the kind of love he showed me in that moment. Uh, and and you knew what he was saying, and 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 he did it. Oh man, definitely. He looked out for me like I was his son or something standing up there. No question. No question about it. That's so scary. And Herbie was nice to you, right? Yeah, and Herbie's nice to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. like gold. He, he's Herbie's like gold, man. He's nice to everybody. He Buddhist, you know. He. I was I was complaining about the money I was making to Herbie. Yeah. yeah, I'm 19, man. Well, I'm not really playing that much on my horn, but I'm complaining, man. I'm getting paid so and so and so and so. So Herbie, before we go out on a gig, Herbie goes, hey, man, look out into the audience. I looked out in the audience. He said, you see those people? I said, yeah. He said, if you don't walk out on the stage, nobody is going to leave. If I don't walk out, everybody is going to leave. That's why you're paid what you're being paid. Then he said, let's go out, man. <laughs> Let's go out. <laughs> so, you know, the jazz musicians, they like that, man. It just, it's yeah. just a matter of a fact. Right. And it's been, and you've been around them your whole life. Yeah, but I grew up with it. You know, and I, yeah. a lot of musicians I knew actually before I, I was in New York, like Art Blakey, Dizzy, I met all of them. First time I played for Dizzy, my daddy gave, gave said, hey, Diz, this is my son. Went and he's a trumpet player. I was 15. And Diz gave me his trumpet. He said, yeah, play the trumpet. He gave, and his mouthpiece was really shallow, different from my mouthpiece. So yeah. I went to play something. Yeah. Man, when I played, it sounded terrible. So Dizzy <laughs> looked at me. He was trying to figure out what to say. He said, yeah. Practice, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we started laughing. And how long you been, how long has been uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center? How long has that been? Um, since 1987. Yeah. And that's yeah. home, right? That's the oh, place. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we sold for our, our staff, board, everybody. They sold for real, man. They showed me so much in this in this pandemic because it's such a hard time for us, man. We not Ugh. we can't we don't have any revenue coming in. My people they still dedicated. They still work. We're putting all kind of stuff up online, getting recordings out, blogs. The musicians are working, putting on summer camps. Uh, we got staff members calling, calling people, everything, man. I mean, I can't. It's, it's it's moving actually. To think about what they're doing in this time, and you know, we still have a long way to go. It's a struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a struggle on all levels, and I think that this new record was like it's just great. Like it really blew my mind, and it's definitely a. Uh, speaking of struggle, it it is an assessment of the of the reality of the situation that is pretty pretty dire and and pretty focused and 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 even funny in a way, but but dark and and beautiful. Man, it's a great it's a great uh, great record. 
man, thank you so much, man. Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, man. You know, it's great to great to, to see you too, man. I'm glad we got the got yeah. the Zoom hook up. Yeah, yeah right. me too. When we get through this plague, I'll come by the place and uh, watch on, you play. Man. Yeah, come to rehearsal. Yeah, thanks, man. Take it easy, Wynton. Love, respect. I enjoyed that. I learned things. I was a little nervous. I tried not to pretend like I knew things I didn't. The new record, Ever Funky Lowdown, is available at, uh, you can get it at store.jazz.org. Now I'm going to try to do a folk hybrid electric blues riff that I got the rhythm of, kind of. There you go. That That's a strong uh, recommendation. It's almost good. Listen up. Fonda. Live in the hearts of us all.